As we continue our, I would say, mini-series through 2 Thessalonians, I invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So the middle of the book here, 2 Thessalonians. If you're looking for it, um, it's after the, the letters that we know, like Romans and 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and then 1 and 2 Thessalonians. If you're in other names like Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Peter, and John, uh, then you've gone a little bit too far to the end of the book. Go back just a little bit to find 2 Thessalonians. And as we read from 2 Thessalonians 2, this round we're just reading one chapter at a time. And to remember that, yeah, these books would have been read, the entire letter would have just been read in one sitting. We're going to do it a little bit slower than that so that we can pace ourselves and pay attention to how God might speak to us chapter to chapter. The Thessalonians are experiencing some hardships, some persecution, and also some confusion that prompted a large, a large reason that Paul wanted to send this second follow-up letter to the Thessalonian church. And so we'll clear up some of that confusion today, and we'll hopefully learn to keep our focus in the right places, as Paul also encouraged them. And also, just as a reminder, since we have communion, we'll dismiss for children and worship after that. I know there is a question in my row, why aren't we at children and worship yet? We'll get there. So, before we read God's word together, let's pray. Father, may your word be our rule, your Holy Spirit our teacher, and the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, and the kingdom that he ushered in be our primary concern. Put our attention and our focus in all of the right places as we read your word, as we let it settle into our minds and in our hearts, that through your word and by your spirit, you might shape our lives more and more into your likeness to more clearly reflect the image of God that we are created in. Lord, may this be something that you do within us today and every day, little by little. Bless the reading of your word. Amen. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things, and now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works, he will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth 
and so be saved. For this reason, God sent them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all, and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There was a certain pastor who was really, really busy and was getting a lot of things done and worked really hard to build up the church. And at first this was celebrated and encouraged and admired, right? We can admire a great work ethic. But over time, the church leadership started to raise some concerns of, have, have we confused a healthy work ethic, which includes Sabbath, according to God's law, with the idolatry of knowing your identity through your accomplishments and not your identity in Christ? And there was maybe some concern also that the pastor was becoming a little bit too controlling, that there was almost no trust. Anything important had to be done by the pastor and couldn't be delegated to anyone else. Well, I'm saying this isn't autobiographical either. Eventually, the leaders sat down with this pastor and confronted. And at first, there was some good listening, but then that turned to defensiveness of all that had been done and all that had been accomplished. And so finally, the, the words were spoken by the pastor in defense of, the devil never takes a day off, so I don't either. To which one of the elders in the room, who was typically a little bit quieter, but had those well-placed words of wisdom, repeated the line back with an addition. The devil never takes a day off, so you don't either? My friend, you need a different role model. Consider that where our focus and attention can go, and, as we, and this is not a sermon actually about Sabbath. Second Thessalonians doesn't have anything about Sabbath rest or the rationale that God gives us in Exodus and Deuteronomy when the Ten Commandments are given that, yes, indeed, you work hard, but you also take Sabbath rest because God invented Sabbath and gave us this day of rest, and also because God reminds the people of Israel, you didn't have rest when you were slaves, but you are no longer slaves. You are free, so take that day of rest. And so even though this isn't a passage about Sabbath, the same principle applies of it's where our focus goes and what and who gets our attention. Where does all of our effort and energy get spent? And who are we trying to live up to be most like? Are we focused on the evil of the world so since the devil doesn't take a day off, we can't either? Or are we being just as, in fact, more focused on Jesus? And to know that this chapter in 2 Thessalonians, it stirs up some of those interesting things about the end of times and the end of all things and what that will be like. And I think every time we come to a passage like this, we kind of wish that there was a little bit more that we could be told 
Like in verse 5, when Paul says, don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And I just read that, and I'm like, what things? Like, can, can you write a little bit more? Because when Paul was with the Thessalonians, he would have spent hours with them discussing these things. But this short letter to them is really damage control as a follow-up. And what's the damage? The Thessalonians are enduring hardship, and they are hearing in their midst that, oh yeah, actually, the day of the Lord, Jesus' return, it already happened, it already came. And the Thessalonian church is like, we missed it? For one, we didn't think we could or should, especially if what Paul passed along to them was words like from Mark 13, where Jesus talks about the end of all things, including where Jesus says, no one will know the hour, not even the Son, but only the Father. The Thessalonians are concerned that they missed something important, and that's one problem. But also, part of their greater problem here is that, well, things aren't great. There's a lot of hardship, a lot of pain. There's persecution. And they're like, so if Jesus already came, we thought the second coming of Christ would fix everything, that the world would be remade and renewed perfectly. And so if this is the second coming of Christ has already happened, one, we missed it, didn't even know, and two, this is as good as it gets, well then, that's not great. And this would lead you to have concerns of your faith being misplaced. And Paul is saying, hold on, do not be deceived. We did not say that. Even if somebody says, oh, well, Paul said the second coming of Christ already happened. Hold the phone or the carrier pigeon in this case. This did not happen yet and you will not miss it. You won't be able to miss it. And so today, as we think about this man of lawlessness that is mentioned, I put that as the sermon title with a question mark because it does raise some questions, some intriguing things about what the end will be like, but also I put a question mark there to remind us, let's question how much focus the man of lawlessness gets that we don't spend more time and focus and attention and energy on this man of lawlessness instead of the man who fulfilled the law and the prophets, which is Jesus. Where does your focus go? Because I was reminded a few weeks ago that there is another end times prediction, which I think was going to be April 24, some cool thing in the stars happening. What do you know? We're all still here. And Jesus is still right that no one will know the hour. But what we're always told is to pay attention, stay alert, stay focused, but on what? This passage starts with a reminder that this is about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, chapter 2, verse 1, and it ends with verses 16 and 17, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. So what are you going to stick to? Stick to Jesus and the good deeds and words that you're already working at. And know that there's other important things that we should know about, but let's not let that steal our focus. That we're so focused looking for the signs in the sky of the end times and trying to identify the man of lawlessness and, and what is he up to, because we're told that he works the same way that Satan works with lots of cool signs and wonders. And Paul's saying, don't be deceived by any of that. You'll know the real thing and God will reveal the counterfeit. God will reveal the counterfeit so you won't be able to miss it. Now, this man of lawlessness, I have to tell you one thing. Um, as we get into end time stuff, I think actually in our day today, we are more influenced probably by the Left Behind series 
than by a close reading of Scripture. And why I say that is this. There, in my high school, college days, there was almost an obsession with the Antichrist, meaning the Antichrist being, you know, well, exactly what it sounds like, someone who's set up against Christ, as if that were a singular figure. And then we hear 2 Thessalonians talk about the man of lawlessness as this singular figure. But I invite you, if you ever have a concordance or want to borrow mine or just do a search, that the Antichrist is not a word that appears in Revelation. Antichrist is not used at all in the book of Revelation. Where it is used is in 1 and 2 John. And in 2 John, we'll read just that portion. So if you flip almost to the back of the Bible, you'll find this. I say this, 2 John, verse 7, I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Any such person who denies that Jesus Christ has come into the flesh is the antichrist. It's not a singular figure, but rather, well, people who deny Jesus. Many antichrists have already come, says 1 John. So don't confuse someone, anyone who sets themselves up against Christ as some singular end times figure. And where we might have a little bit of difficulty even in 2 Thessalonians is wondering this man of lawlessness does sound like a singular figure. And what we would have a hard time narrowing down is that the people who read this letter, there are people in their lifetime who they were like, you know what, there's some rebellion, we see Emperor Nero, Emperor Diocletian, Emperor Caligula setting themselves up as divine, as God, and some rebellion happening in the midst of all that so that they keep looking that, okay, this must be the one, and then Jesus will come back. Nope, not that one. This will be the one. And we've done that throughout human history, that you can find articles, if you go back with a little bit of reading, to most wars suggesting this one is the end of the world. World War I, nothing ever like it. World War II, atomic bomb, just add fusion. But each time, no, not yet. I actually think the Apostle Paul would be shocked that we're reading this 2,000 years later and actually still waiting for the second coming of Christ. I think they thought it was going to be sooner than that, sooner than what we have. And we can wonder if we're in the generation that'll be the end or not. And I would just say this, I'm skeptical of any claim that puts us in that spot in history. And even if we are, or even if we're not, the timeless advice doesn't change. Because we could get distracted on trying to read the signs and become like tea leaf readers and lose out on what we were told in 1 Thessalonians, to continue to love one another and to grow in your faith and in your love. And really, verse 15 is the summation of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 15, so then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. Stand firm and hold fast to Jesus. And standing firm and holding fast to Jesus does not make us cynical. It does not make us mean. It does not fuel animosity between the church and the world. But to stand firm and hold fast to the gospel is to know that Jesus Christ died for us and rose again for us and that this good news is meant to be shared with the world. So this man of lawlessness, that's something to be mindful of. But really, every generation's task is to be mindful of not being led astray in some way or another and to not confuse 
signs of the times with this must be the end. If we spend our time looking for the man of lawlessness, I think we would be, well, at some point wasting our time because the way the sentence reads in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 8, and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow. Pause there for a minute. Jesus is the one who does the revealing. So even if we were looking, it would be only Jesus who does the revealing of who this man of lawlessness is. Since it wasn't Nero, Diocletian, or Caligula, we'll move on to today. But Jesus will reveal and then will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. He will overthrow by the breath of his mouth, meaning that now, probably that would mean spoken words. You take a breath and then you breathe and you use that air to make words. Or if you're not a good singer, a joyful noise. Noise being a good definition. Some people sing well, though. But Jesus will overthrow this man with the breath of his mouth. By breathing, Jesus will have the victory. And how will this, this man of lawlessness be destroyed? By the splendor of Christ's coming. By Jesus showing up in his fullness, in all of the grand splendor and majesty, just his appearance is enough to destroy that evil and to overthrow it and overtake it completely. So if we're sharpening our knives or storing up ammunition to fight against the man of lawlessness, know that that is not our task that that's a, an end times thing to be clear about, is that our task is to stand firm, hold fast, and continue to be encouraged towards good deeds and words. Because that fight isn't our fight, and we as individuals could not win it. That's Jesus's fight, but even fight is a strong word because he just shows up and breathes. He just shows up and appears, and this overthrows all the evil of the world and puts the judgment in 2 Thessalonians 1 into motion, where those who troubled you will be troubled and you will be comforted for all of your afflictions. That is set in motion just by Jesus showing up, just by his appearance, which is a reminder to the Thessalonian church and to us today, you won't be able to miss this. You cannot miss it, because the real thing will have so much grandeur and splendor and grandeur that it will reveal all counterfeits and that Jesus will have that final victory by the breath of his mouth and just the splendor of his coming, his arrival, will overthrow all evil and wickedness and set all things right. And for time's sake, just to summarize, there's some things in here that trouble us of Verse 11, for instance, for this reason God sends people, these, them a powerful delusion so that they'll believe the lie. Because before that we're told they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Now we can come up with some examples of how we might think that work and it's troubling because that's not the way we want God to behave. Because we do believe in God as revealed when Jesus told the story of the prodigal son who's always waiting to bring back, who's always ready, who's ever patient and loving. And yet we do find in the Old Testament simple, simple summaries like the people in the time of Judges saying, give us a king, give us a king, give us a king. And God says, no, no, no. And they're like, but please, 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 please give us a king. And God's like, you're not going to like this very much. No, we will, please give us a king. And so God gives them a king. And if you read the rest of the Old Testament, you find that, oh yeah, Saul, okay, David, pretty good most of the time, except when he was, you know, committing adultery and murder and conspiracy. 
And then Solomon, everybody was wealthy, that was nice, but taxes were high. And then Jeroboam, Rehoboam, we just go off the rails from there. God did give them what they wanted because they begged for it repeatedly and was like, I don't know if you're gonna like this as much as you think. It's like when your kids want a certain toy and you're like, yeah, I'm not buying this for you. You buy this with your own money so you can buy your own disappointment. You're not gonna like the spicy thing, but. And yet we find this maybe troubling if we don't read it without the rest of scripture in mind. If we don't think about how God shows up in the Old Testament. How, yeah, eventually, sure. If you wanna believe that, if you wanna try to find your satisfaction there, go for it. And then the delusion takes over and lies take over. But what are we to do until then? It seemed that we are called to continue to encourage one another. That Paul, in the midst of addressing just a couple lines, really two paragraphs about the man of lawlessness, moves on very quickly back to, we ought to always thank God for you. You who are loved by the Lord because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. Meaning, you know what? Whether this is the last generation or there's 2,000, 3,000 years to go, I'm grateful for you because you heard the gospel and it changed your life and I can see that transformation still happening among you today. This is good news. And so stand firm and hold fast and be encouraged by Christ himself and the Holy Spirit that our hearts may be strengthened in every good deed and word. And I wonder if just in our announcement time today, if we hear and see that, that the work for us is not to look around for the signs of the end times, but the work is to show up, spend time together, and make this church a beautiful campus so that we can enjoy it together. If the work is to every other week, more or less, to come and make quilts, that we pray together as a people who pray, as a people who care about not only our own group, but also the whole world. I wonder if our good deeds and works are caught in church work days and prayer quilts and prayers that'll be offered today. I wonder if our focus is right when instead of worrying about the man of lawlessness, if we say, hey, you know what? If we believe in hospitality, it'd be great to have barrier-free, ADA-compliant access bathrooms on the top level here. Wouldn't that be a good thing to put our focus and attention on? I wonder as we get together for the fair, as we look forward to that, not only the money that we raise, but the time that we spend together, if our good deeds and works are in sharing time with one another and in building relationships as there are regulars who come to us every year because we got good food and because we care deeply. These are the good deeds and works that we are encouraged towards. And to know that we should stand firm and be on guard and be aware and be mindful but to know that the ultimate battles belong to Jesus. And our task that we are called to again and again throughout the New Testament is to stand firm, hold fast, care for one another, pray together, pray for the world. Find yourselves focused on the good deeds and works that are in your control and use your God-given gifts and abilities to do those. And don't worry, we won't miss the moment when Jesus shows up. Because with the breath of his mouth, just a breath and the glorious appearance of Christ, all things will be made new. And that final battle to Jesus, it's not a battle at all. It's his victory. And so we get to live in hope of that victory even when things are dark, even when things are difficult, even when we face hardship. 
and knowing that Christ has the victory. And one day, he will reveal himself in all of his splendor and glory. But until that day, we come together as believers to celebrate the ways in which he did reveal himself to us and said, use these gifts to remember me. We celebrate communion in remembrance, communion, and hope. Remembering that Christ was born into the world, that he took on flesh, that he lived for us, he healed and taught and, and fed, and that he died for us and rose again for us. This we remember, and we remember that he gave us his body and that he shed his blood for our sins and for our salvation. Similarly, we come in communion, knowing that who we share this meal with, it's not just those whom you see, but it is Christ present here with us, who is at our table with us. And in fact, it's Christ's table that we are invited to, that the Spirit is present here among us, and that our communion is shared with all those who have partaken in this supper from centuries beyond, going all the way back to Jesus at the first Lord's Supper. We share this supper with the communion of saints, those whom we see, those who have gone on to glory, and those who will come ahead of us. And this is our hope, is that on that day when Christ makes all things new, when we are gathered to be with him, this pledge and foretaste, this promise of what is to come, will be met in its fulfillment. And that's going to take a lot bigger table. And the food will be oh so, so good. We come in remembrance of our Lord Jesus Christ, in communion with him, and with our faith and hope and trust based on Christ and nothing else.